Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 56, we read Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, published in 1971. All right, so for season four, we're going to try something a little bit different that we're going to sprinkle in now and again, and that is reading some of these classic uh, left leftist books from a conservative perspective. So for today, we've got the infamous uh, Saul Alinsky and his rules for radicals. Now and again, we're going to we're going to bring in one of these um, leftist books and kind of com- compare and contrast with a lot of conservative thinking that we that we're reading just to get a, a more hopefully well-rounded view and We'll see what's what's similar, and and I'm sure we'll have some critiques. Uh, we decided to start with this one just because it's kind of famous and been wanting to read it. So, without further ado, Saul Alinsky was born into an Orthodox Jewish home in Chicago in 1909 to Russian immigrant parents. He attended the University of Chicago, studying crimi- criminology, including graduate work that took him to Joliet State Prison, where he studied prison life. He quickly turned to political act- activism. In the late 1930s, he organized the Back of the Yards area in Chicago, which has been made famous by Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle. Uh, Alinsky created the Industrial Areas Foundation in 1940 to help organize communities in Chicago and throughout the country. He later turned his attention to organizing the middle class through his Training Institute for Organizers. Throughout his career, Alinsky was arrested and jailed uh, many times. And on one such occasion is when he wrote most of this book, Rules for Radicals. He died in 1972. Well, this is the type of book that wakes you up and sits you up straight because Saul Alinsky does not mince words. Uh, He's a, it's, this is a very dark and nihilistic book, Mm -hmm. but it's also, you and I, Kyle, were joking beforehand Alinsky says the quiet part out loud, and that's what this whole book is. is uh, it's telling you like it is, and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. And if you don't like it, tough. <laughs> but yeah. He starts by saying, This book is for young radicals who are committed to the fight and to life. Today's generation is desperately trying to make some sense out of their lives and out of the world. They have rejected their materialistic backgrounds. The young are looking for a way of life that has some meaning or sense. To the young, the world seems insane and falling apart. The older generations still cling to the old values in the simple hope that everything will work out somehow. But the present generation wants a meaning, a sense of what the world and life are, a chance to strive for some sort of order. We are talking about revolution, not revelation. And there are no rules for revelation. Sorry, there are no rules for revolution any more than there are rules for love rules for happiness but there are rules for radicals who want to change the world so it's a it's a smash bang beginning and what i just found so fascinating is you know the more things change the more they 
stay the same. I think this uh, mm-hmm. could have been written by any of the Antifa leaders <laughs> this I'm, week. I think a lot of them have read it. I, I, it's a it's a very influential book on the left. I'm, I think uh, wasn't it Hillary Clinton wrote her senior thesis about it when she was at, at Wellesley. And oh wow! It's um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people attribute. I think a lot of people on the right maybe give Alinsky too much credit and sort of anything the left does, we say, well, those are Alinsky tactics, you know, so, you know, it's their, their big conspiracy. But I think some of it's true. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, far left radicals have read this book and a lot of people who want to move in that direction, change things in that direction have, have read this. And it, it is a how-to guide to that. What, what struck me first of it is, is that he, um, Alinsky's not really talking about an ideology here. And in fact, he's kind of anti-ideology. Yeah. He's definitely anti-dogma, which he, I guess he considers sort of a more crystallized ideology and ideology in its final form. He's not about uh, telling you what to believe. Uh, He doesn't particularly care. He's about the struggle. And that's definitely different than anything we've read before. Most of what we're reading is, you know, about ideas and about, you know, how should we live what changes should we make to society? This is really more about the, you know, the struggle is good. The fight is good. He's in it for the fight. You know, you know, some guys just like to fight, like to argue. You see him on Facebook, probably, you know, you used to see him in bars. Now, you know, now it's mostly online. Some guys like to fight. Alinsky likes to fight. And I think this is, uh, like he said, I mean, the only thing we've read close to this is the Prince. Um, yeah. And yeah. He, in chapter one, he says, the Prince was written by Machiavelli for the haves on how to hold power. Rules for Radicals is written for the have-nots on how to take it away. <laughs> that, that's a good line. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, like, even when I was disagreeing with the guy, he can write. Uh, you know, he's uh, he was he's very concise, and he and he gets his point across. And like like you said, he doesn't mince words. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so that's what really struck me too. It's like a Machiavelli for the twentieth century, like how to how to organize people. And it, so it's not a how-to manual in the sense of like, I almost came to this book expecting a how-to manual on, you know, how to create a pipe bomb, you know, how to disrupt the police, you know, how to, but it's not sort of that. It's more, more Machiavellian as far as how to seize and take power. You know, he says, this book is concerned with how to create mass organizations to seize power and give it to the people to realize the democratic dream of equality, justice, peace, cooperation, equal and full opportunities for education, full and useful employment, and a chance to live by values that give meaning to life. In the same breath, he'll also say, like as, as you mentioned, the organizer does not have a fixed truth. Truth to him is relative and changing. Everything to him is relative and changing. He is a political relativist. And I mean, throughout this entire book, he, do, he doesn't particularly care what your values or your morals are. <laughs> and, yep. and this book is not written for, just like Machiavelli, it's not written to increase your virtue you know it's written to get you thinking about how to be effective you know how, how to how to take power how to seize power how to how to wield it in this case he's not teaching uh, an individual prince he's he's trying to pull together uh, a mass of people which in, in many ways is a lot harder yeah it's, it's i mean it's democratizing and he puts a lot of value in democracy he's almost seeing it as an end in itself which i think we've you, you hear that a lot. I mean, you hear, you hear it especially from the left. Well, the people want this, so you know, there it is. It's there's a majority for this. But I think we've 
in a lot of our other readings talk more about democracy is good because it's the best way to preserve liberty, you know, compared to the other forms. And liberty is good because it's the best way for people to find their own path to virtuous living. I don't think he goes that far. I think he, he really thinks that democracy is the thing, that the people should rule themselves. That's it. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's not nothing. I mean, it's, it's certainly democracy is, uh, important. I think we both like it. Uh, but he doesn't, he, he, by spreading this manual of, of, uh, organizing to the people, it's because he wants every person. It's sort of like, uh, in Machiavelli's day, the prince had an army. Now he wants, he, he is sort of arming the masses. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, you know, everybody can do these, everybody can get power and uh he says to know power and not to fear it is essential to its constructive use and control then why would you want power uh, that that too is a little vague but i don't think he looks he says he basically he says because it's there um and he sort of paints the struggle for power as endless you know which is a kind of a progressive idea that the struggle goes on forever there's no end point but it's also true i mean if you if the people you know, as Alinsky would define them, are not looking for power, not trying to have control over their own lives. Somebody else will. So somebody's always going to be in charge, and he wants it to be the masses, the downtrodden, the whoever mm-hmm. is whoever is the have-nots in this generation. Yeah. Mankind is divided between the haves, the have-nots, and the have-a-little-want-mores. <laughs> <laughs> On top are the haves with power. They have money, food, security, luxury. On the bottom, this is the group he's concerned about, are the have-nots. The have-nots are chained together by common misery, the common misery of poverty, rotten housing, disease, ignorance, political impotence, and despair. Between the haves and the have-nots are the have-a-littles want-mores. That's the middle class. And generally, he says, they seek the safe way where they can profit by change and yet not risk losing the little they have. They are tepid and rooted in inertia and comprise the majority of the population. While he says this class, from this class have come the great world leaders of change, Moses, Paul, Martin Luther, Robespierre, Samuel Adams, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, Napoleon, Lenin, Gandhi, Castro, Mao. <laughs> well, most though, he says, are do-nothings who profess a commitment to social change for ideals uh, but then abstain and discourage all effective action. They are known by their brand, he says. I agree with your ends, but not your means. <laughs> yeah. This was just, I found deeply insightful. I really did because, you know, in our present moment in America right now, I mean, you, you really have some extremists at work. and But then you also have, I think, a great mass of people who are sort of like in in the camp of, well, I get what you're trying to do, and it's it's not that I disagree with parts of it, but I don't love the looting and the burning and mm-hmm. <laughs> and beating up police and you know kind of thing. Yeah, and when he divides the world, he mostly talks about haves and haves-nots like most people do. But in mentioning that third group, have a little want more, that's almost everyone Yeah, in a, in a country like America. I mean, it, you know, in, in, a, in a third world nation, it's more, it's a lot of have-nots few haves very few in between but here most people are in between and that's why i think radicalism of the any means necessary type never is never works in america because 
people if if everyone in this country were desperately poor yeah we wouldn't care if a few things got burned down because it's not our stuff and it never is going to be our stuff you know if you're in that sort of country but here most people you know want to get ahead a little and they have a little something and you know it's i i think there's a an inherent conservatism to that mm-hmm you know, it's like, well, I have a job, I have a house, I don't want to lose them, you know, I don't want to go back to either where I started or where my parents started or where somebody started, you know, they don't want to get back to, you know, square one. And that, I think that's why Alinsky starts targeting middle class for action, because I think he's seeing that, you know, when you read the works of the old communists, they're talking about the peasantry or, you know, a urban proletariat that's, just desperately poor and willing to do a lot of things for change because everything is so bad. Mm-hmm. That's not here. You know, that's not, that's not America. That's not Canada. That's not Western Europe that, you know, we've, most people got to have a little bit, you know? So, um, you can understand his his change in targeting because he is, um, and it's it sort of, it's in line with his theory that the, uh, the organizer doesn't have fixed principles. You know, he's seeing what works and he's saying, look, the key to change in, in, a country like the United States is convincing the middle class of things, not, you know, a uh, proletarian uprising, uh, you know, right. you know, of the sort that, that Marx dreamed of. Right. And he, de- he doesn't really dwell on how to develop the, the middle class, but it, I think you're right. He definitely leaves us with the impression that that's really the key. You know, he's focused most of, most of his career on, on the have nots, but the key to real change is going to be the have a little want mores. And, that really, again, got me thinking about the present moment because mm-hmm. I do feel like the, this context of COVID and quarantine and locked in, it, it really did. I mean, it has rung everyone's bell in a way that otherwise it wouldn't have. And so maybe there's in, in the eyes of, of many of, that want to take us in a radical left direction, they'd see this as a moment that maybe we could get that, have a little want more to sort of move quickly also and maybe they're right i don't know but let's go through a few of these he has he has two sets of rules the first rules are what he calls the rules of means and ends and let's walk through that first and then then he has a then he has a second series of rules which are his rules for radicals but both sets are i think really instructive and fascinating so so he begins the the rules of means and ends. He prefaces it by saying, the real and only ethics is and always has been. Does this particular end justify this particular means? So once again, I mean, very Machiavellian and amoral. You know, there's mm-hmm. we're, we're not trying to reach these some aspirational morals. Instead, we're saying, like, what does the present moment require? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so his first is, One's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's personal interest in the issue. And he says, we have all the strength enough to endure the misfortunes of others. <laughs> you know, like our, our concern with ethics really has a lot more to do with, does it affect me than what do I? And I think a, a prime example of this is like the Uyghurs in China, right? I mean, here, yeah. here's some people who are being, being, you know, systematically brutalized, thrown in camps, you know, uh, sterilized, but we're a lot more worried about our, I'm not saying these are not problems, but the problems we have in America really don't 
rise anywhere near that level. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's there there's there's genocide going on over there and it's uh you know, we're still buying products made by that slave labor. And yeah. you know, hardly anyone's even talking about it. So yeah, that's that's a good I I hadn't thought of that particular comparison, but that's definitely there. So here's a second. The judgment of ethics of means is dependent upon the political position of those sitting in judgment. And he uses the example, he says, even the Nazi resistance adopted the means of assassination, terror, property destruction, kidnapping, sacrificing innocent hostages. (laughs) The opposition's means used against us are always immoral, and our means are always ethical and rooted (laughs) in the highest of human values. (laughs) And this is, I mean, this is deeply sort of relativistic, existential, you know, what works for me. And and, I mean, I think we're we're using this as a jumping off point to sort of criticize some of the leftist views. I mean, this is obviously alive and well on across the political spectrum, you know, like what, what they do, uh, do, do to us is immoral. What we do to them is always ethical, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or even when it's not, it's well, they started it. We can't just, yeah, yeah. they're causing it. They're forcing us to do this. We don't want to, but we must. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Third, in war, the end justifies almost any means. And he uses the example of Churchill joining forces with Stalin. I mean, American joining forces with the Soviet Union, the communists, in order to, you know, fight uh, the Nazi advance. So the, the morals will shift, you know, quickly if, it, if needed. Fourth, judgment must be made in the context of the times in which the action occurred and not from any other chronological vantage point. Now, I really wish that the left would take note of that because I think we can all agree that bad things have happened in history, you know, shocker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way they viewed things was different than we view them now. And we're so, you know, freaking enlightened now that we've got everything figured out. Well, we don't, that's the truth. And George Washington was a slave owner and that was not a good thing but it came in the context of his own time. And I just find that, that critique of, you know, from, from, from the position of, you know, generations later as just kind of dishonest and doesn't really advance any, I mean, it really doesn't advance any cause. I, I No, it doesn't. It, it's just, it's kind of nihilistic because it just destroys the past. And, and even, you know, it will destroy what we, are living in now if that same if those same principles are applied 100 years from now who among our leaders could survive that scrutiny I mean, things will be different i don't know if they'll be more left or more right but they'll be different in some way we can't anticipate and the people living now will come under the same you know scorn that you know we're now giving or not us but you know people around in these movements are giving to past generations like nobody's going to survive the scrutiny of their great-grandchildren no it's 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 impossible i mean hardly any of us can survive scrutiny of our peers in every in every aspect but yes by demanding everyone be perfect in every way in order to be admired it's really just destroying everything because there's no there's no one can meet that and and obviously it sets up a a completely impossible standard that uh, i mean who, who can we look to as examples or, you know, I mean, he, he uses, he uses the example here of, he says ethical standards must be elastic to stretch to the times. And he uses the example of Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus 
you know, Lincoln defied a directive of the Supreme Court. You know, he mm-hmm. made illegal use of military commissions to try civilians. So even Lincoln, who I guess I probably shouldn't say this on the podcast because someone's going to hear it and be like, yeah, that's right. Let's burn down the Lincoln Memorial too, you know. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, he says those critical of Lincoln have a strangely unreal picture of a static, unchanging world where in politics, consistency is not a virtue and it's not how the world works. So I, I thought that was insightful and... I don't know. I, I hope that was part of Hillary Clinton's thesis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fifth concern with ethics increases with the number of means available and vice versa. So moral questions may enter when one chooses among equally effective alternative means. But if you lack the luxury of a choice and you're possessed with only one means, well, then the ethical questions will never arise because he says, automatically, the lone means becomes endowed with a moral spirit. You know, what else could I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's, I think, self-evident that if you have choices, then you're susceptible to more judgment, where if it's just this, the only the only thing I could do was this. And so it's like, okay, well, that was the only thing you could do. Sixth, the less important the end to be desired the more one can afford to engage in ethical evaluations of means. So uh, the less it matters, the easier it is. And I think, again, in our present moment, I, I feel like it's in many ways it's shooting fish in a barrel because there, I have not really come across a person, maybe you have, but who thought that the George Floyd uh, killing was, okay or admirable or acceptable i I really haven't come across anyone and so i haven't either you i mean from the from the most left wing to the most right wing people i know nobody's saying yeah he deserved it you know everybody is kind of looking at that with a little at least a little disgust if not a lot so yeah to me it's just it's easy pickings and so you have to almost like search for a villain like oh everybody agrees with this Okay, well then, <laughs> let's expand. You know, anyway, mm-hmm. all right. Seventh, success or failure is a mighty determinant of ethics. You know, it spells the difference between a traitor and a patriarchal hero. You know, so I mean, this is the the old trope that the history is written by the victors or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. those who those who sit on top, they're the ones who are going to determine what was ethical. You know, the firebombing of Tokyo. You know, had that happened here. There's an argument like would we have called that a, you know. Oh, yeah, that would have been a war crime if yeah. it happened to us for sure. But that's, uh, that's how it goes. So on a related note, the eighth, the morality of a means depends upon whether the means is being employed at a time of imminent defeat or imminent victory. The same means employed with victory seemingly assured may be defined as immoral, whereas if it had been used in desperate circumstances to avert defeat, well, the question of morality would never arise. And so he uses the example of World War II and dropping the atomic bombs on, on Japan. I personally, so I, I didn't find, I don't find that immoral, but that's a conversation no, for another time. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> but but the, the way he was writing, it was, you know, he was basically implying that so many people found it immoral that it was a real topic of conversation. Um, yeah, I but, mean, I think it would have been more immoral 
not to use it and just to send a million American men to their deaths. But that's, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people have different views on that. (laughs) And I completely agree. But the, but his, but he does make an interesting point here of essentially saying like if the atomic bomb had been dropped right after Pearl Harbor, in other words, when America really was defenseless, then, then it would have been judged much more, a far more uh, morally superior decision versus towards the end when it seemed clear that America would very likely win but it was more of a timing and how many how many deaths would be required and i think in the history i mean the real truth is like there's really not a lot of evidence that truman even gave it a second thought you know it's kind of like do we want to sacrifice another hundred thousand americans or do we want to finish this yeah so uh, but anyway the his the olinsky's point here i think is well taken of it's it's much much more moral if you're you're down on the ground getting beaten versus like you're on top dude mm-hmm just distributing the beatings. All right. Ninth, any effective means is automatically judged by the opposition as being unethical. And he <laughs> uses, he uses guerrilla. What I think guerrilla tactics today, we'd call them terrorist tactics. You know, the, what terrorists do, uh, we find deeply immoral, but then, you know, and they would argue, well, what do you think? How, how do you think Americans won the revolutionary wars through guerrilla tactics? And, it's uh, it's completely moral when we do it. It's completely immoral when they do it. Yep. Of course, I'm not. I'm not sure it's an entirely perfect analogy to, you know, blowing up a building full of innocent people versus. But then again, uh, you know, maybe folks would say, "Hey, that's happened in America's past too." I don't know. What do you think? It's yeah. It's clearly not the same. I mean, the difference. I mean, guerrilla tactics are a little closer because they still tend to target military to military. Whereas, uh, but I think people would use these arguments to justify terroristic tactics, even if it's, I mean, to us, unthinkable to do that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Tenth, you do what you can with what you have and clothe it with moral garments. You know, he, he quotes, uh, Lenin, they have the guns and therefore we are for peace and for reformation through the ballot. When we have the guns, then it will be through the bullet. <laughs> And he uses the example of Gandhi also. You know, Gandhi used nonviolent passive resistance. Well, he says as soon as Gandhi and the Indian National Congress uh, took power, they quickly outlawed passive resistance, and Gandhi was perfectly okay using violent force in Kashmir versus the Pakistanis. That's only eight months after securing independence. So now, look, I don't know if that's a, a, a fair historical judgment. I'm not, I'm not up to speed on it enough to know. But his his point is sort of well taken. It's kind of like, you know, if uh, like they say in, in in the law, you know, if you if if the law's on your side, argue the law. If the facts are on your side, argue the facts. If neither are on your side, you know, argue the policy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if what you have is passive passive resistance, then that's what's that's what you're going to do, and that's what you're going to use. And once you have, you know, once Lenin has the guns, then well, we're going to use bullets. True. And, and Lenin, I mean, they, when the Soviet Union was first started, they made it legal for the first time in Russia for ordinary citizens to own guns because <laughs> they thought this was good. And then about five years later, they took that away pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> they went right go. back to the czarist policy of no one can have guns except the army. And he, so he develops this to say the haves develop their own morality to justify their means of repression. 
The haves usually establish laws and judges devoted to maintaining the status quo. Since any effective means of changing the status quo are usually illegal or unethical in the eyes of the establishment, the have-nots are compelled to appeal to a higher than man-made law. And, you know, what really made me think of this is, I mean, obviously this, is, this was true with the civil rights movement, you know, appealing to God and, and our, you know, common humanity, and that was effective. All right, last one, and then we'll move on to the, you'll lead us through the, the rules for radicals. Eleventh. Goals must be phrased in terms like liberty, equality, fraternity, because the goal once named cannot be countermanded. That's uh, that's a quote from Whitman. Whole new and unexpected ends are among the major results of action. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is comms 101 as far as... Like, yeah, get, getting the slogan right. Yeah, yeah, get the slogan right, make it vague, make sure that uh, we get a win, you know, that mm. whatever our position is, is broad enough that it captures the win so that we can claim a victory. That's what I think the, uh, the defund the police slogan is not great because it's yeah, very, it's very specific, specific and, right. but people don't like it you yeah. know, for the most part. They're, Wait, what? Like reform the police. Oh, sure. Yeah. Maybe they shouldn't be doing the things that led to the riots. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> a lot of people can get behind that defund. Like, Whoa, wait a minute. You know, that's, they, they didn't, maybe they should have read this book before they came up with that slogan. There could have been a better one that captured the uh, the zeitgeist in a right still like, pithy but more uh, acceptable way yeah something on something that's pith, more catchy than reform the police but that's the idea like reform the police and then suddenly you'd have like a 75% issue instead of i did hear the other day um, nancy pelosi say that when you hear defund the police you got to think not literally but capture what they're what they're trying to express and and that did give that was an encouraging statement from her <laughs> for me, but well, um, yeah, she, I mean, yeah, she's not going <laughs> to defund the police. She's, she's very rich, but, but it's still uh, your, we, your point. Like, you, you know, use a, use a phrase that, that can bring people together and capture more. And obviously like Trump's not super good at this either, but no, no, it's it both. Yeah. There's not, well, I mean, make America great again is, is popular slogan. That's, I mean, it's not even, originally his but it's you know yeah. it it's uh i don't know if it's up there with liberty equality and fraternity but it's uh you know it's catchy yeah it's very <laughs> so then we the next chapter we have these rules for power tactics the uh the, the rules for radicals themselves the first one is power is not only what you have but what the enemy thinks you have that's uh i mean that could be in the art of war too yeah, you know right. there's sort of if you if they think you're tough if they think you're gonna or if they think you're going to violate all these ends and means ideas, you know, if they think that you'll do whatever, like, well, this guy's crazy. Don't mess with him. You know, I think that that's a good point. Uh, even if you know, I mean, I guess he's saying, you know, as the organizer, if you know that you can't actually deliver on the rather extreme claims you're making, but the enemy thinks you can, well, it's just as good as being able to, you know? Yeah. Love. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you, you know, just like playing poker or whatever, you know, if you can, convince the other guy it's then you actually have that power in this situation the second rule is never go outside the experience of your people he says when an action or tactic is outside the experience of the people the result is confusion fear and retreat so you can lead the people but only so far you know you can't if you're the the one organizing them you have to organize them in a way that they understand yeah. so you know, if you're organizing a group that's got a tradition of pacifism 
they're not going to go out and knock heads for you. You know, it's just, it's not their way, you know, and, and vice versa. I think if you're organizing a violent group, they probably won't take passive resistance as a method. I thought this was one of his, uh, his most insightful thoughts. And I think it has application throughout politics and maybe other aspects of life too, that when, when you're trying to persuade, you have to work within their, their sphere of experience. And when you go outside it, it's, they, they might agree on the surface or be like, Oh, okay. But they're not, it's not going to, they're not going to internalize it. And, and really, yeah. you got to talk to people in the way they understand. And that, like, if, you know, a policy, if it's presented to the people now as, well, look, this is what's going on now is part of how this whole country is terrible and everything about it's terrible. A lot of people are going to be like, well, I'm not listening to that because this is actually a great country. Yeah, but if you but... present that same policy as, look, this is really what America's promise is about. This is what we're supposed to be living up to. You know, this is the this is, you know, the true manifestation of the founder's vision. Then they might give it a listen. You know, it's just and how you how you present something. You know, whether it, you know, at, at, like a lot of these demands that are going on now, or, oh, it's because this is a whole, you know, the whole country's racist. Everything about it's racist. All the people in charge are racist, both parties. You know, it's like, well, you're not going to get a lot of people to listen after you just told them that they and their country and everything they believe in is trash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, I think that's what he says here. That's outside our experience. Most people love this country and, you know, if it, it's outside our experience to, to bash it. On the other hand, the third rule, he says, is wherever possible, go outside the experience of the enemy. So, you know, wrong foot them in the same way that you don't want to wrong foot your own people. That's sort of a just a mirror image of the second rule. Uh, to me, this is like an encapsulation of Trump's entire like political career. You know, yeah, go outside the expertise of the enemy. And we're getting used to it now. But I mean, it's he, the way he originally just attacks people <laughs> you know lying dead and the whole thing you know crooked hillary like it just caught people flat-footed they didn't know how outside of their experience they've never experienced anything like that in, in their political careers yeah yeah he doesn't he doesn't talk like other presidential candidates or presidents have ever talked that they're still yeah i think a lot of them are still mad oh i can't you believe what he said like yeah he says stuff like that how do you not know that by now he says stuff <laughs> but some people are still get wild about it. The fourth rule, make the enemy live up to their own book of rules. Yeah, that's sort of, you know, if you're, I guess that is in line with the uh, the rules of means and ends that you were talking about before. If the enemy has a lot of ideas about improper means, then make them live up to it, even as you're breaking all those rules, you know, because, and that, that I think that still comes across because people, people hate a hypocrite. And I feel like this is the, the past time this is right twitter was created is i mean i'd say two out of three posts on twitter are like revealing what the enemy has done <laughs> to break their mm -hmm. own rules or whatever <laughs> yeah it's 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 a good it's a good weapon he's and like it is the the fifth rule which follows is ridicule is man's most potent weapon because when we do see somebody breaking his own rules we ridicule them we mock them yeah and that's, you know, one of many ways in which we, we look at the enemy and say, oh, look, he talks these, you know, these great principles, but how does he actually live? You know, it's like um, anytime somebody's in power and they, you know, oh, like uh, in Michigan when the governor locked down the whole state, but her husband still went to the lake house to get the boat ready. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that about? <laughs> We're here in Pennsylvania when the, the secretary of health told people, yeah, that, you know, 
we can send those COVID patients back to the nursing home. But pulled her own mother out of there, didn't she? Yeah. Because <laughs> she knew it was bad. You know, and that's, we, we, you know, that's, they're not living up to their own rules and we will ridicule them for it. And I think that's, this is a something that's been accepted right and left at uh, this, the fourth and fifth rules here. And so th- those to me, again, are like the, <laughs> Alinsky saying the quiet part out loud. It's like, yeah, you're right. Those are incredibly effective, but it's kind of too bad because it's, it's such a bad commentary on society and why, you know, our politics is such a cesspool. Yeah. Cause it also requires that you never change your mind. Yeah. You know, cause if you do, then people say, Oh, look, he's full of it. And I say, well, you know, we're supposed to change our minds sometimes when we come up across new facts or even when we just think things through better, you know, or say, yeah, I was wrong. You know, this is, the opposite is what I should have been doing all along. But that there's no room for that in these, in the social media landscape. The sixth rule is a good tactic is one that your people enjoy. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a cancel culture right there. They love it. Yeah, they yeah. love canceling people. <laughs> <laughs> no greater joy than bringing down someone greater than yourself, is there? For yeah. some people, that's the truth. I mean, I, I think it's gross, but you know, people good like example. it. Like the uh, protests too. People like protests. I mean, the people going to them too, you know, they get, you know, do you, if you ask any individual there, do you think you've done anything that changed things? Like, no, but I feel like it was the right thing to do. It's like, well, yeah, they, they like it. And I had a similar conversation with a friend who's, who's super liberal and, and went to a protest and he was saying, well, wouldn't you go? And I'm like, well, conservatives are just not the type of people who protest really. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of like our experience, you know, the, one of the earlier rules about the experience of our people. That's not our thing, you know? It's really not. You see, there were a few of those, you know, anti-mask protests and things, but it's even most conservative, you know, even the ones who agree are like, yeah, I'm not going out there. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These people look like idiots <laughs> holding, up their, holding up their misspelled signs and whatnot. That's <laughs> not for me. And then a, a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. That's the seventh rule, which is sort of like the mirror image of the sixth rule, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, if these protests are still going on in six months, everyone's going to be tired of them. Yeah. And it's, and they'll be smaller because some of the people there will be tired of them, too. It's like, yeah, we did this already. Like, I, I'm not going to do this every week. I've got things to do, you know, especially <laughs> as the country starts to open up again. It's like, ah, I'm going to the movies. I'm not going to miss the next. Yeah. You know, I, I, it, it's true. I mean, if it's important, you know, you keep doing it. But we are all humans and doing the same thing over and over is boring. And it is a drag. The eighth rule, keep the pressure on. That kind of, uh, that's hard to reconcile with the fact that it becomes a drag to do the same thing over and over again. But yeah, keep the pressure on. Sure. If these protested, you know, to again, apply it to our current time. If they'd gone away after the first weekend, I don't think we would have seen big changes. True. True. So that's, you know, keeping the pressure on. And it also is, uh, important to keep the pressure on after you win. He talked about that elsewhere too. It's, it's not just... You know, we elect somebody. Ah, right. Mission accomplished. You know, you got to keep the pressure on because a lot of people will backslide and make concessions. And, you know, now that they're in office, maybe they're not so much of an outsider anymore. You know, now it's, oh, you know, these guys in Washington aren't so bad. <laughs> keeping, keeping the pressure on is, is something that I think every activist, be he left or right, has to remember. The ninth rule, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. I guess. I don't know. I think the thing itself can also be kind of terrifying. Yeah. 
depends what you're threatening. He doesn't really elaborate on that. That's just that's the whole paragraph. You could kind of see that in Trump, you know, like when certain people, well, I'll, I'll walk away from your campaign if you, you know, keep along this course. And he said, yeah, go go for it. You know, that's the threat's terrifying. But look, we, we're going to win anyway. And it happened to be right. And who knows if it's going to be right again. Yeah. But, you know, there were certain people of respectable opinion. He figured he could afford to lose and their threat was their bark was worse than their bite. I don't know. So, number 10, the major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. That's kind of like the eighth rule again. Yeah, I mean, uh, tactics, yeah. Uh, keeping the pressure on. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little repetitive. Um, but it's also um, something that's more at home on the left than the right, is you know, the constant struggle, constant revolution. There's no there to get. Yeah. And, you I mean, achieve it's, something, it's... and then it's like, that. oh, what's the next thing we need to do? Right, we pocketed that, and it's it's kind of advocacy one on one. You know, you just got to keep the pressure on, keep moving. Eleventh rule: If you push a negative hard and deep enough, it will break through into its counter side. That's sort of, I think, that's along the lines of provoking a reaction, like what the passive resistance type movements want. Yeah, you know, it's like all right, we'll, we'll push this, we'll push this, and it provokes the enemy to act in such a way that it turns everyone against them. Yeah. Yeah. The 12th rule, the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. Yeah, I guess he says, you cannot risk being trapped by the enemy in his sudden agreement with your demand saying, you're right. We don't know what to do about this issue. Now you tell us, I don't know. That seems like what you'd want. <laughs> Wouldn't it? I mean, if you're saying we need this and the enemy says, yeah, all right, you're, you're right. Let's do it. Well, all right. That's, it means yeah, you haven't gone far enough. But again, I think that in the present moment, we have that because, again, a lot of people agreed with the the heinous action and and a lot of people support like, OK, yeah, it looks like the police do, do, does need some some reform. So let's let's have that conversation. Oh, really? Well, then we need to go much farther. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, part of the problem, too, is I think there's no one voice for the movements that are going on now, they're not organized in a way that Alinsky would see organization. So even if some people in there are saying, yeah, all right, well, let's talk, let's talk about them. We, I'm glad you agree. Other people are taking the, you know, the, well, no, let's, let's do more. And you don't know which is which, but the most obnoxious voices tend to get the most attention. So the 13th rule, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it and polarize it. Uh, this is, uh, this is sort of the, politics of personal destruction yeah that's our politics that we see. this is this is what i mean this was the kavanaugh hearings you know this is you know not it's not just oh we disagree with uh, originalism or you know textualism it's like this guy he's the worst he's a rapist he's a sexist he's a racist you know and it it almost didn't matter who the person was he was going to get smeared. And the next nominee, if it's a Republican nominee, will get the same. You know, yeah. it's, it's, whether they've actually done anything or not, it's making the enemy personally odious in people's minds is, in Alinsky's view, superior to the more high-toned uh, argument of uh, right and wrong. Yeah, and once again, just uh, a description of the nastiness of politics and all these things. Yes, they work, but it's just kind of sad that, that they work and that 
but I guess they hand it to him. I mean, he, a guy like Alinsky, he's like, I'm not here to worry about what's right and wrong. I'm here to tell you what's effective and what's not. <laughs> uh, all right. The hour is very late. Those are the rules. There they are. If you, if you've heard of the book, the rules for radicals, now you know them. I, I guess to close, I would say it's a, uh, it's bracing. It's a look at how the other half thinks. But as disturbing as it is, I, I don't think you can deny its effectiveness. Um, and it's kind of these rules have made the political landscape of today in, in large part. Some of them are basic things that people have always been doing, but in, in crystallizing them and then teaching them to the uh, standard bearers of the far left, he's, uh, I think Alinsky's vision has come to pass. It's what we're seeing every day in the streets, in Senate hearings, in in political campaigns and it'll only get worse as we approach the election this year. All right. That's Alinsky. Catch us next time.